Hello and welcome. My name is Ish and I'm the director of the Sanskara platform and today I'm with Professor Mike Barnes from the UK Medical Cannabis Clinician Society. Our topics of discussion today is irradiation, the entourage effect and COAs, otherwise known as certificate of analysis. So Professor, thank you for sharing your time to discuss these topics. I hope you're doing well. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. No, no problem. We understand there are well over 40 medical cannabis dried flower products we've seen on the medical market and around 50 of which, 15 of which are not irradiated. We also understand that the, these products to be prescribed in the UK, they have to meet standards set in the European pharmacopoeia as per yes. the reason we have irradiated dried flower products. Yes. Um, so tell me, is irradiation, is it, is it necessary? Uh, no, it's not necessary. Um, some would say that a non-irradiated uh, flower product is better in the sense that irradiation will destroy a, a certain proportion of the of the volatile compounds, particularly the terpenes. And so, I don't think anyone's actually proven it by a sort of a blind tasting, as it testing, as it were, um, or blind tasting for that matter. Um, but it's on the you know, crudely speaking, the, the more terpenes and the more cannabinoids you've got, probably the better the product, and therefore non-irradiated product is probably, but not definitely, um, a better as a medicine than the, than the irradiated product. And um, okay, so what are the good things about irradiation then? Well, irradiate. Well, basically, what the irradiation does is preserve the the quality, I suppose you could say, and save contamination. Just like any natural product, um, a plant, a flower will have what you could call contaminants, bacteria, um, particularly microbiological contamination, which is destroyed or largely destroyed by radiation. Um, so it will probably preserve it longer and more guarantee the quality, but it will lose something of its, um, its profile, if you like. So there's pros and cons. I can see why uh, people irradiate and i can see why people don't irradiate um so it's a bit of a controversial area okay so um i've reviewed some of the standards uh, set internationally uh, mostly in the us um their levels are a lot higher for the mi uh, microbiology um yes. so uh, i think even in canada they've started irradiating their products too so why is it set so low in europe compared to uh, the US. I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, it's set very low. There's a lot of controversy about it. There's a lot of, it's a slightly gray area. Yeah. Um, I think obviously an irradiated product will have less microbiological content uh, than the non-irradiated product. That's clear. But there are almost certainly two standards. There's one for the irradiated product and one for the non-irradiated product in the sense that if a product, any product, let's do it simply like a tea bag, um, oh. you know, if you're going to use it by if effectively um, pouring boiling water on it like a tea bag, um, you can afford initially to have more microbiological content than if you're not going to do that because you destroy it by pouring boiling water on it. It's the same principle as if you're going to vape something. Vaping at, say, 160, 170, 180 centigrade is clearly going to destroy most of the uh, contaminants. So some would say the European pharmacopoeia um, levels for those 
um, let's call them teabag products in the short term, yeah. um, are are higher, and therefore the flour is okay to come into the country because uh, uh, non-irradiated, because it's got a slightly different level of bacteria um, than those that have been irradiated. It's all rather complicated, isn't it? But I think yeah. basically uh, we have now non-irradiated flour in this country, which the MHRA have said is okay to come in. It's in the country. So I presume it's part of the people who set the standards and monitor the standards. So I presume they're okay with that product coming into the country. So we have, we've seen some clinics that flat out refuse to prescribe non-irradiated products. Should clinics yes. be deciding what the doctors prescribe and should patients be given the choice if they were to rather have irradiated or non-irradiated flour during their treatment? Uh, personally, I think uh, people should have the choice. Um, obviously, it's always up. The doctor's got to write a prescription. So ultimately, it's actually up to the doctor because he or she's got to take responsibility for writing that prescription. But I think in any uh, medical doctor-patient um, consultation, any anything, not just cannabis, it should be a matter of discussion between what the patient wants and what the doctor thinks is right. And often that coincides. Sometimes it doesn't coincide. It probably coincides less in cannabis medicine because generally speaking, Many of the patients know a lot more about cannabis medicine than the doctor prescribing it. I have to say that's less so than it was a year or two years ago. We've now got 100 plus doctors who begin to know what they're talking about. Yeah. Um, so it's more of a discussion now. Um, but ultimately, I think if there's no reason why not, and a, and a patient wants a, um, a non-irradiated product, then the doctor, I think, should, should go along with that. I can't see any reason why they shouldn't. So I don't actually agree and the clinic shouldn't um, stop doctors prescribing. That's the CQC, the, that's the controlling, the Care Quality Commission, the controlling body of clinics, um, is, I believe, very against any um, pushing the doctor down a particular formulae route. Um, a doctor in any situation should be allowed to prescribe what he or she feels is right in the best interest of that patient. I think the some of the clinics that stopped that were cautious at first because they thought that product was illegal. Yeah. And I don't want to, I'm not a lawyer, uh, I'm not the MHRA, I'm not the CQC, so I'm going to leave the detailed discussion of that to others. But in my view, it's not illegal as long as they follow the right European pharmacopoeia regulations. Yeah, and this is the thing, we, as patients, we can't really understand whether, you know, it's actually following the regulations or not, or how it's, yeah, it's you know, very, what it's the very regulations are. I mean, yeah. I spent a, uh, I spent an hour, as sad that I am, I spent an hour or so looking at the European Pharmacopoeia regulations, and I still don't fully understand it. Um, so I how mean, can you expect, well, why should people waste two hours of their life trying to understand something that is is really very ob obscure, frankly? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I can agree. I mean, if you're calling yourself sad, then I'm sad too. I've, I've yeah, sat there reading both, the Pharmacopoeia too. Yeah, did, you get, did you get to the bottom of it? <laughs> not, not really. <laughs> I do. No, I, I, I think I understood it. I think what I've just said is correct. But you know, I'm. You could get. You could probably one of those cases where you could get two lawyers on both sides arguing vehemently that they were right and the other side was wrong. Yeah. So it's it's a very odd area. But basically, I think there's plenty of non-irradiated products worldwide. Uh, they're perfectly accepted. Many patients prefer them. They're now in this country, and I think they're in this country legally and should be used if the patient or the doctor think it's the right thing to do. So we see patients preferring the non-irradiated products. Um, 
most patients mentioning the entourage effects um, mm. because it seems that radiation kind of, as you mentioned, causes, uh, I mean, you don't have the full spectrum of all the mm. compounds in the, in the plant. So is, is entourage effect, is the entourage effect true? Is it a myth or is it how? No, um, no, it's definitely, I think, I think there's any scientific doubt that it's real now. And you can take the example, uh, the, the best example is probably epilepsy, because um, most of the work's been done on that. If you look at a relatively pure product, Epidiolex is nearly, but not quite, a, a pure CBD isolate, and there's nothing wrong with it. It's been licensed. It's a perfectly good medicine by GW Pharma, um, but it's, it's nearly an isolate. I think it's about a thousand parts of CBD per mil to three parts of THC, so it's it's pretty well CBD isolate, and it works really well. I mean, if you put a put a number on it for the sake of the audience, about forty, I think it's forty three percent of the children taking epidiolics can reduce their seizures by half or more. That's fantastic. So that's a that's a remarkable result because these are children. Bear in mind, have are resistant to all licensed, straightforward anticonvulsant drugs. They don't work. They they might work for a short time, then they stop working. So they're drug resistant. So getting nearly half. Reducing their seizures by over half is remarkable. But then if you compare the epidiolex results to the full spectrum plant, that's the plant with, with whatever minor cannabinoids and terpenes that that, um, that cultivar has in it, then that 43% can be increased to, it depends which study you look at, but, but around 70 to 80% reduce their seizures by at least half. And the only thing you've changed is the full spectrum of the plant. In other words, the entourage effect. So just in the in the little microcosm of, of epilepsy, I think is absolutely clear that the entourage effect is real. Um, there's, I think it's real across the board. I think it's a real thing. I think the full spectrum products work better, are more appreciated by the patients. They get a better effect, whether it's for anxiety or for pain or anything else, uh, with a full, spe full spectrum product rather than an isolate product. And that's the entourage effect. There's, the trouble is, it's, there's limited studies that confirm that. But I think talking to people who try it, real world evidence is called, is overwhelmingly says that the full spectrum products are better than the isolate products. That's really good. I mean, I was reading uh, an article, um, I can't remember what it was called, uh, but it's basically said that THC on its own, um, it gives a higher that no, it has no specific character. So that seems boring. And it was from a geneticist, um, I can't remember his name, actually, uh, but he um, says we have a huge data of cannabis um, and it's genomic data, basically. And um, with that, we should be able to identify genetic markers associated with chemical results or even patient experiences to, you know, to provide these outcomes. So how is it that we can test the entourage effect like you've mentioned with um epileptic um uh, the epilepsy tests um the um, clinical study um we've been able to see uh a big change a big difference there uh so is there any mm. other way that we can test it or is there any other way we can identify the entourage effect yeah i mean i think you to do it properly i don't think what you'd have to do to take pain is to give people an isolate um, THC or perhaps a, a dual isolate, perhaps THC and CBD combined, something like that, 
um, try that. Um, do that with a group of people. Um, monitor how, how the effect is on pain. You can do that with a simple visual analog scale. You know, naught is no pain, 10 is the most extreme pain you can imagine. So score your pain. Do that every morning at nine o'clock or whenever, whenever you want. And you can see the pain of eight or nines going down to fours or fives or whatever it is. And compare another group of people uh, who have the full spectrum product and see if they get a better effect overall. And also monitor side effects. Because it's said um, pretty firmly that isolates have more side effects because they require a bigger dose um, than the full spectrum product. So also monitor side effects. So you've got one group on isolates, monitor their effect and their, and their side effects. Another group on full spectrum products, do the same with them and compare the two. Or even swap over. That's another stronger model, if you like, is do people say a month, two months on the isolate, swap them to the full spectrum product. Uh, and monitor the change, so you, they're controlling it because it's the same person you're dealing with. So there's lots of there's lots of academic sort of ways of looking at this, um, but it hasn't much at all actually been done. Um, maybe we should, because um, there are people pushing isolates, and if we can produce some robust evidence to say, well, actually, full spectrum products are better, that would be presumably helpful to the community, to the doctors, and to those companies, because ultimately the companies want to presumably push something um, that does the best and therefore sells most. So if you put it on purely economic grounds, it's it's everyone's interest to do these studies and confirm what we think is true about the eye entourage effect. Yeah, um, I've actually got this one written down, though. Um, it was uh, Margaret Haney, a neurobiologist at Columbia University and a cannabis researcher. She said, we know it can affect pain and appetite, but the large majority of what's being said is driven by anecdotal marketing. These guys were really trying to make money. So would you say that the entourage effects could be, because we've not been able to identify these things um, science, uh, in research, would it, would it be a marketing scheme in the end if we, if we did bring it out? Is it just going to stop isolates and focus on full spectrum? No, I think there's always going to be a place for isolates, um, particularly in athletics, because um, you know CBD, pure CBD, but loud anything else isn't. That's one small example. So no, I, I there'll always be people who try and make a fast buck and you know push market something just on a few anecdotes. But I think if you look at big studies of real world evidence, take the Drug Science 2021 program that's now got over three thousand people. That is producing and will continue to produce a lot of really good evidence that shows that uh, it works for pain, it works for anxiety, what works, what sort of dose works, all that information will come out. That's not anecdote. And when does anecdote become scientific study? I mean, you could argue that forever. One yeah. person's experience is probably anecdote. Five people's experience is probably still anecdotal-ish. You know, once you get up to 100 people, let alone 3,000 people, that's not anecdote, that's solid evidence. Yeah. So, you know, I, the more, the bigger number of uh, people we can recruit to these real world studies, the more robust the outcome and the more robust the results. Fantastic. I mean, going back to radiation, if we were to include that into the clinical studies of the entourage effect, and if mm. that is actually to, is that, a, would you feel irradiation? Do you think irradiation is a barrier to the entourage effect? No, I don't think it is. I think the latest 
data that I've seen, um, there's not much of it in Venice, is you lose about 20% of the terpene profiles and some of the more volatile minor cannabinoids. Um, so yes, there's less, let's keep the terpenes, there's less terpenes in there. But yeah. you know, if there's if there's 95% less terpenes, you would probably lose some of the entourage effect. If there's 5%, you probably wouldn't. So if losing 20% of the terpenes, does that make a real difference? No one's actually done that. So it'd be a really interesting study uh, to do that real-world type study again, compare people with irradiated, non-irradiated product. You could do that even in a blind fashion, probably, um, and just see, are we are we talking nonsense? Is the is the non-irradiated product a little bit of a prob, uh, you know a perception in our mind rather than reality? Yeah. Well, we could easily prove that. I would like to think that a non-irradiated product is probably better than an irradiated product, because the more of the natural product you've got in there, the better. But yeah. there's actually nothing that can actually prove that yeah. in terms of a big study. Well, just so you mentioned terpenes. Um, how when we look at COAs of um, some yeah. of these products, um, we don't really see these terpenes listed out. Or sometimes we might, no, for example, um, I think it was Medcan. Uh, they published their COAs and they had graphs and tables of all their um, yeah. terpene uh, profiles and everything. Do you think they should have this information, or should absolutely? I uh, absolutely no doubt. I mean, I think it's, it's the person's right. You're putting it into your mouth or, or vaping it. Um, and I think a patient has an absolute right to know what they're taking aboard. Um, I think any product, I would love to see it compulsory for any product a doctor prescribes having a full certificate of analysis. That's not just the microbiology content, the heavy metals, the pesticides, those necessary safety standards if you like but exactly what's in it what minor cannabinoids and what terpenes are in it now i'm not going to say it's going to be very expensive to to analyze all 160 cannabinoids and 100 plus terpenes um but you know we, we know the, the the common ones we know perhaps what is it, 10 15 of the minor cannabinoids maybe another 10 or 15 of the terpenes i think we should know uh, what what every um strain's not the right word you know what i mean like what every strain has in it what every cultivar has in it. As an example I use is if you go into Tesco and buy a packet of crisps, you know, you know what's in it. You know what flavoring is, you know, and you have an absolute right, I think, to know what you're putting in your mouth, let alone as a medicine. So yeah. some of the companies that are really reluctant to produce terpene profiles, I don't fully understand why, to be honest. It's more expense, but it's not that much more expense. Um, and I think they should be forced to, to publishing the terpene profile. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, he's, uh, I've noticed that the MCCS has recommended that pharmacies supply patients with both COAs and terpene profiles. Yeah, exactly. But these, but these guys, these guidelines are almost exclusively ignored by members. Some products comes with yeah. cannabinoid analysis that's not got enough information for patients. Is the yes, is the MCCS right. able to apply any pressure to member pharmacies here? Um. Well, ultimately, we're not a no is the quick answer to that because we're not a policing body, no. and MCCS is not a is not a, a body where these companies sign. They're not members because it's a it's a clinician society of individual clinicians, not just doctors, pharmacists, nurses, whatever, but clinicians. So we have no um, legal status, if you like. We can say you ought to publish it, and then people say, "Oh, that's a nice idea," and then completely ignore it. Um, 
we're, I think we're, all we can do is keep on pushing for it. And in drug science in the 2021 program, we're now not putting any of the products on the formulary without a terpene profile. Uh, there's a few that um, are historically on there that I still haven't got a terpene profile for, but we're going to take those off over the next few months if we don't get the terpene profile. So hopefully, once people see that, well, this product's on that formulary and it's going to be prescribed, and well, because it's got a terpene profile, then other people who are reluctant will say, well, we better produce one then, haven't we? Yeah, yeah. I mean, this yeah. is the thing. It would be good to see that sort of competition to gain that traction because, yeah, I mean, it's it's very it's much needed. We're we're given when we're asking for COAs, we are given these documents which don't really mean much, and they've yeah. got a lot of information on there which doesn't really relate to, you know, our treatment as much as we need it to. So, um, I agree. Yeah, I mean. At present, patients are usually forced to pay for an appointment each time, and uh, every time yeah. they would like to try a different strain. Such uh, you know, such calls usually cost last or usually last more than a couple of minutes. Yet, yet costs can start from as little as 50, 40 pound, uh, 49 pounds, mm. um, which can sometimes be a waste of both time and money. Do you think this is acceptable? Mm. And can it be possible? No implement an open prescription similar to like a generic prescription where patients are prescribed yeah. a certain amount of THC or CBD with a certain dose each month, which they can then fulfill directly with the pharmacy. Of each of their yeah, state. I think that's, um, and that happens as, as you know, but and I do in many countries, some of the American States, for example, the doctor just says, I think you need a, a high THC, low CBD product or whatever it is. Here's a card, go away and pick the run or pick the one that's in stock is another issue. Um, uh, we're not going to get there in that country, in this country, for a while, because at the moment it's the law that for a prescription, the doctor has to write exactly what it is that they want that person to take. Exactly, um, it's the exact product, the exact dosage in words and figures. There's quite a lot of um, uh, law around how to write a controlled drug prescription. So it's not going to change quickly. It's not up to, it's, for example, just so people were clear, it's not up to the doctor being awkward. It's not up to the clinic being difficult. It's the law. And at the moment in the country, this country, doctors don't write those generic type uh, prescriptions like you know, this person needs a painkiller. You know, it, it has to be exactly this person needs aspirin or yep. paracetamol, uh, one, whatever it is, gram three times a day for a week. So it's that precise. That would take primary change in the law. Yeah. I'd say which law is probably the Medicines Act, but forgive me if it's not right. Um, I would love to see that. I think you're absolutely right. Us, it's doctors generally are busy. I'm not excusing them, but getting the detailed knowledge of what could be hundreds of different varieties of um, cannabis, both flour and oil, and later other things like tablets and suppositories and patches, that's going to be a full-time cannabis doctor job. And are we going to see full-time cannabis doctors? We might. Probably not. So I think, but we will see and could see full-time cannabis pharmacists. Um, the, that you know, the word I don't think much of in the Canada, the bud tender, or bud tender, California. Yeah. <laughs> no, and the, some are good, no doubt. Some are bad, no doubt. But at least they're full-time people who can know and understand and can discuss with you what you might get. So I would love to see what you've just suggested, but it's not the law yet, and it, I don't think it's going to be here soon, sadly. Yeah, that's, uh, it'll be it'll be it'll be interesting to see that. I mean, it'll give more freedom to patients uh, as well as yeah, you would as well as uh, kind of increasing that competition within the market as well. 
Um, we already have a few websites with a product directory uh, with stock updates. Yeah. Um, although these yeah. websites are not official and can be wrong sometimes about a lot yeah. of information, which seems to be confusing the community slightly. Yes. Then we have doctors who are not able to access the correct information themselves and are either yeah. unable to provide a correct price or confirm whether a product is in stock or not. Yeah. We always see a platform for doctors and patients to access a product directory with live stock updates. I'd like to think so. You're absolutely right. Um, the, the, the supply chain issues are a real issue at the moment. And it's often not the clinics or the dispensaries that are at fault because they just can't get the, something into the country. It's there one week and not there the next. So it's a very, it's, I'm not justifying it, but it's very difficult to keep these things up to date. And doctors need to know what, if they're going to prescribe something that's going to be in stock. If it's in stock now, is it going to be in stock next week? Um, so I would love to see a, a more a live sort of national formulary, for want of a better word. I don't think it's going to be easy because um, the pharmacies aren't part of a national network. They're their own companies. They do their own thing. They tend to provide stock active stock lists to their own doctors, but not other doctors who aren't part of their clinic, sort of understandably. So it's actually very difficult for the patient and very difficult for the doctor to know what's in stock. And you say there are websites that try and do that, um, and it's almost impossible for them to keep it up to date. I mean, good luck to them. They do a great job. But not, I don't say often, but certainly occasionally they're just wrong because something's suddenly gone out of stock and they haven't been notified because the clinics don't notify them. They've got to find out from talking to the network of patients or some doctors or whatever. It's very difficult and very unsatisfactory, which is the reason why we need to take it out. Well, not take it out, but we need it on the NHS, basically. Then we would have a much better, A, it would be cheaper, the economies of scale of the NHS would be more accessible to people. You wouldn't have to pay the doctor his 50 quid or whatever for the consultation. It'd be free as it should be. When the law changed, I, th I hope that the government actually wanted the law to change so it was accessible to those that needed it um, and didn't want it just to be in the private sector. So I'm going to keep campaigning until we've got cannabis available in the NHS. Then, A, it will be cheaper. B, it will be better stock because they'd be buying bulk and they'd be able to predict the stock flows much more readily. And part of that is to get licenses for UK growers, because it's probably easier to get it in the country it's already in the country. If it's grown in the country, you won't have the, the um, supply chain issues. So there's a long, long way to go yet. But what I don't want to see in, I don't want to see tomorrow, but I don't want to see realistic in two or three years, we're still struggling with a whole private sector. Nothing wrong with the private sector. Fine, if the private sector is going to be there, I mean, Medicine in this country is about 10% private and 90% NHS. And there are people always going to want it private. Fine, good luck to them. But most people want it on the NHS because they can't afford it otherwise. And that's what I, I will personally keep struggling for until I probably I might drop dead before it happens. But you know. Well, I agree. I mean, I'm definitely with you on that. We need it on the NHS. And I'm always trying to yeah. do everything I can to support that. Um. Okay, well, I think we'll leave it at that. That was all the questions I had um, regarding oh, those topics. Okay. So we've, that's fine. Well, it was quickish. Yeah, we've, uh, we've, we've, we've <laughs> gone through it quite quick. I mean, I do have a few questions uh, regarding patient sure. rights. Um, so I was kind of thinking um, about 
patient rights uh, issues because it concerns the community quite a lot. Um, They've come out of an illicit market and they've come to a legal market where they're trying to, where they're seeking that protection and that relief from that anxiety. Um, Should doctors be informing patients of their rights? Yeah, I think any doctor-patient consultation, the doctor has an obligation to tell people um, but the situation they've got and what they can do with cannabis, um, the dri- driving particularly, they need to inform the patient about. Um, they need to form about, uh, if they're on the THC product, well, about the impairment, try not to drive on your usual heavy machinery. I don't know how many people use heavy machinery, but it's a sort of phrase, isn't it? But, um, yeah. you know, I think the doctor needs to fully inform the patient about the, the pros and the cons um, of the cannabis medicine, which effectively informs them of their rights. I think that's absolutely right. Some doctors do, and um, some don't, I'm afraid. Like any branch of medicine, there are really good doctors and there are less good doctors. Yeah. I would like to think, and I would say this, wouldn't I, that the 110 doctors prescribing cannabis are a little bit way out. They're a little bit, um, you know, they, they want to do the best for their patient. They're not hiding behind, uh, not pretending that cannabis is dangerous. And they've gone out there and done it, and quite bravely, some of them, against the advice of their colleagues or the pressure from their colleagues. I'd like to think, and I'm not an apologist for all cannabis prescribing doctors, but I'd like to think that most of them try and do a good job. I would have to say that, wouldn't I? But I think it's yeah. probably true. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I hope so. I mean, we are seeing uh, we're seeing improvements in the system anyway. So well, it's, it's, well, it's certainly better than it was uh, two years ago, and even a year yeah, ago. Yeah, we've got more choice. We've got more clinics. We've got more doctors, and with that, more competition comes hopefully in the end a better service. Certainly. Whether we've seen that through yet, no, we haven't. There's some dispensaries that are still a dreadful service. There's some clinics that aren't that good. There's some doctors that aren't that good. Um, you know, it's it's not easy at the moment, but it is, I genuinely think it's getting better. That's great. Well, can, can uh, clinics provide forms of ID and verification to reassure patients, landlords, employers, venue security or management, and even the police? Because we're seeing a lot yes. of issues um, trying to verify patients and patients not having their medication or medication completely taken away from them, whether yeah, that's dis- to reimburse. Disgraceful. Them. Yeah, it's disgraceful, isn't it, really? So clinic, should clinics be providing some sort of ID and verification? I, I would love to see that, yeah. And there's there's various systems around, like CanCard and such like. Um, so there are those systems. Clinics, I think, should be able to provide that um, this person is taking this medicine for this problem. So hands off, worth to that effect. Um, the trouble is, of course, then the cynical members of the public or landlords or publicans or police will say, well, you just made that up. You just got to print it off your home computer, haven't you? So I'm still nicking it. Um, so uh, combined with that system, we need an edu- ongoing educational program for the public. I think the latest figure I saw that 60% of the public are still don't know that cannabis is legal for medical prescription. Um, some would say it's higher than that, but it was a fairly robust survey that I saw for one of the clinics with several thousand questionnaires gone out and, and um, polls that showed the figure was 60%. So even if it's whatever it is, that's still the majority of people out there still don't know that it's legal for a prescribed cannabis product and that's not good enough that's what we need to focus on i mean maybe target first of all police i mean it's their people all the people should know it's legal but we still hear cases where the police you know, don't believe it and they take 
take it away from someone who's been driving and whatever. So there's a lot of silly ignorance about still, sadly. I mean, do you think it would be appropriate for the MCCS to get involved and to communicate with the police around the UK and, you know, say, look, we're doctors, we're prescribing patients, could you leave them alone? Yeah, we can certainly try that. We haven't done. Um, No excuse as to why, a bit manpower issues, it's run on a bit of a shoestring. Uh, But yeah, it's something I'd love. I think it's really important to campaign for. for people. I mean, I'm more than happy yeah. to help. I'm more than happy to take part yeah. and get involved. Good. So, you know, we, we do need to mm. share this information. I've been communicating with my local police force and trying to, you know, get them yeah. to understand what we have and how it's supposed to be yeah. you know, verified. So, And some yeah. are really good. I mean, it's, 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 the weird thing is, isn't it, some of the police areas um, just ignore cannabis generally, Yeah, uh, like Durham or I think it's something in Wales as well, you know better than I do. Uh, but then, the, you know, take my local area around Durham is very tolerant of all cannabis, whereas Northumberland is very intolerant of any cannabis. And, you know, so we need some system, not just to speak to the, the Bobby on the beat, if there is such a thing these days, but we need to get in, presumably the police meet occasionally to update themselves. And we need to get in on those update meetings yeah. and just give them half an hour on cannabis and its and its merits and its downside and when it's legal and when it's not and that such like. It's odd that we have to tell the police. Um, but Even though it's been this long, four years almost. Exactly, but we do. And, you know, if you've got any inroads into the hierarchy of the police force, then let us know. I'm, I'm, I would be love to give a talk to, whether it be the individual police force, like Northumbria, or whether it be some sort of national body or national conference, uh, equally fine. So, yeah, we definitely uh, need something, to. We, we, something we definitely need to do, yeah. Of course. Well, I think we'll leave you at that. Thank you very much for your time. No problem. Nice to speak to you. Okay, bye for now. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.